This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey, everybody, welcome to the wonderful world of Remnant Radio. In this program, we've got uh, Dr. Ken Johnson with us. We're going to be talking about these scenes, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the 12 Patriarchs. It's going to be an exciting program. Stay tuned. You are watching The Remnant Radio, a crowd-funded show where we interview pastors, teachers, historians, and theologians from different churches and denominations. My name is Joshua Lewis, and this is my co-host, Michael Roundtree. Together, we want to help you break outside of your theological echo chambers. If you're interested in learning about history, theology, or the gifts of the Spirit, this is the show for you. Well, we've got an exciting program for you today. Uh, Frankly, you know, when you get into a space where that crosses over into history and theology and prophecy— Uh, we get especially excited because those are kind of all the things that we want to talk about. Uh, And Dr. Ken Johnson is going to be helping us walk through some of the history of the Essenes and the Dead Sea Scrolls, all that fantastic stuff. So so if you're new to the channel, uh, these are things that you geek out about as well. Make sure to hit the subscribe button, like the video, maybe help share it around uh, to some of your friends who might also be interested. This is going to apply to like you know, Jewish apologetics. This is going to apply to, uh, you know, what were people looking for as they were looking for this messianic figure to come that would eventually be Jesus. And, and man, the, the, the writings that we have here in the Dead Sea Scrolls and some of these stories are, I think, extremely faith-building and encouraging. So I think this is going to be a great program for you today. If you want to be notified when we come out with videos like this, the best way to do that is to sign up for the newsletter. A link for that can be found in the description. So click over there to the newsletter. Make sure to subscribe to that, and you'll get updates when we have conferences that go live, when we have courses go live, those kinds of things, updates, discounts, all that fun stuff can be found in the email. Uh, without further ado, let me introduce you to my co-host, my partner in crime. This is Michael Roundtree. How are you doing over there in Oklahoma? I am doing well over here in Oklahoma. Equally excited about this interview. Uh, we were having such rich discussion before the show started. We were like, we, we're just going to have to start this show. So, uh, Ken, super excited to, to have you on the show and uh, give you a chance to share what you already told us again, because it is utterly fascinating. So, uh, anyway, Ken, uh, if you could maybe just introduce yourself to us, tell us a little bit about your ministry, any of the books that you've written, uh, that, that'd be great. And then we'll jump into our subject for today. Okay. Thank you. Um, uh, thanks for having me on the show. And basically I've been studying the early church fathers and the Dead Sea Scrolls for quite a while. The idea being, if you can see what the Essenes, the writers of the Dead Sea Scrolls taught, and then study the New Testament, and then see what happens after the New Testament. And when you see the theology is the same, the history, the concepts are the same, then it's kind of an airtight uh, theology to have. And we have uh, lots of interesting things. The Dead Sea Scrolls themselves started out uh, in the 1940s, mainly with just copies of scripture. So some 60% of the 900 and some manuscripts that have been discovered so far are just copies of scripture. Everything is fragmented. We don't have a whole copy of anything except for Isaiah. Um, but then in by the time you get to the year 2000, 
the theology parts finally come out. And some of those are amazing with 11Q13 and other things talking about a Messiah dying for our sins, when that would happen, how it reconciles us to God, starts the age of grace, all sorts of things like that. Um, so it's really amazing. A lot of Jews now are beginning to uh, question things. They're taught to stay away from Christians because Christians are weird. But then you get these copies of your ancient, ancient, you know, grandfathers that say, no, the theology is, is correct. The, the, the cults came in the form of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They lied to you. So now we've got a lot of people thinking about becoming Messianic, going back and reading the New Testament in Hebrew, seeing if it meshes with the prophecies and going forward. So it's a fantastic thing. I think it's it's prophesied in Isaiah 29, and I think it's probably part of what Paul talked about in um, Romans about eventually all Israel will be saved. So I think we're beginning to see some of these amazing things happen in our lifetime. Fantastic. Well, I know we're going to scratch the surface of your research and your work. Maybe at the top of the program, you can point us to some of your written literature, uh, your YouTube channel, those kinds of things, so that people can can keep following this conversation. Because as exciting as this is, you get a lot of content to unpack. So maybe point us to your books, YouTube channel, that kind of thing. Okay, yeah. Uh, my YouTube channel, uh, uh, my uh, website actually is biblefacts.org, and there's links there to the YouTube channel. Uh, basically, I've written 33 books on various subjects, prophecy and things, but recently, over the past five years, we've done a lot of things with Dead Sea Scrolls. One of the things we're going to be talking about is um, ancient testaments of the patriarchs. That concept is taught that the people from Adam through Aaron wrote a last will and testament, which talks about morality and prophecy and those kind of things, apparently very important. And again, Christian theology, which is pretty interesting. Then we put together last year the New Covenant of Damascus. It's all about their theology, what happened to them, the apostasy in the 400 silent years. It's not silent anymore. So we've got a lot of things like that. We put together the Dead Sea Scroll calendar. It is really amazing to be able to look at the New Testament and the Old Testament. And when it says Jesus did something and three days later something happened, you instantly know when it was, if it was a Sabbath, the calendar is really amazing, and it really helps cone uh, prophecy. There were other prophets mentioned, like Gad the Seer. We published this a ways back. This is not a Dead Sea Scroll, but it is mentioned in the Dead Sea Scroll. So it's kind of an interesting thing there. And we've got the Book of Enoch, Book of Jubilees, and other things like that. So uh, uh, we're trying to reproduce all of these things. We've got other books coming out about uh, like the smaller fragments that are prophetic and things like that. So uh, tune in on on Monday nights. I have a live stream uh, with a Q&A. Super cool. Well, I, I guess I want to know, I want to start off with who are the Essenes? Because I mean, if you said Dead Sea Scrolls, I think most, even evangelical Christians are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are like, you know, uh, old fragments of something found out in the desert somewhere. And they prove that the Bible hasn't been tampered with a ton, right? Like that's the general gist of what they know about the Dead Sea Scrolls. But who are the Essenes? Maybe introduce us to this group of people and their participation with the Dead Sea Scrolls and the kind of uh, literature surrounding that that's not scripture. Well, basically, the, the concept is if you look at the uh, Old Testament, Jews are Jews. They uh, debate about different things. 
uh, but they're just brothers, okay? And then all of a sudden you get to the New Testament, you got Pharisees and Sadducees and Essenes and Sakari and Zealots and all these guys trying to kill each other. And you have no clue what even happened. According to the Dead Sea Scrolls, they give a chronology of the events happened uh, at that particular age. On the calendar part, we understand that there's uh, major ages at the end of each age, a lot of prophecies fulfilled. So they're looking at the end of the second age, which is when the Messiah would come, die for our sins, everything focused on their time period. You and I are looking forward to the end of the age of grace, which should be coming pretty quick. Um, but basically, the Essenes are saying we're Jews. We're the original Jews. We have the original calendar, the original teachings. There was an apostasy that hit. And then from that, long story short, is you got Sadducees that formed, Pharisees that formed, and then several other, I think there's seven subgroups of each one of those. Um, and they said they're basically cults. Sadducees don't believe in life after death. They don't believe in, in angels or a Holy Spirit or anything like that. So I would agree that's a cult. Pharisees came up with this concept of an oral Torah, saying that the Messiah was just a, uh, was just a general. There is no virgin birth, etc. And they would say that's a lie. And we know that because we have the writings of the patriarchs, which is from Adam to Aaron. They specifically say the Messiah is God incarnate. He comes to die for our sins. The timing is given, the exact date, uh, what would happen, how, how we're forgiven, how we enter the age of grace, and the other things that would happen with it. So if you believe the grandfathers, then your supposed oral Torah is wrong. So this, this is at first an in-house debate. Who's right? Who's wrong? Well, as a Christian, I believe the New Testament. So if the New Testament is correct, the Essenes are correct, and the Pharisees and Sadducees are wrong. But so from their standpoint, then they're just Judaism, Judaism 101 about a Messiah coming to die for our sins and reconcile us to God. And anybody that teaches anything else would be considered a cult. And the main thing is they got so bad, according to the scrolls, that uh, towards the end, around 70 AD, it says that all of Israel was walking in madness. Um, you're, you think you're the government and you need to kill me because I did the Sabbath wrong. I think I'm the government and I need to kill you because you did the, something else wrong. Everybody's trying to kill everybody. It's total madness. And so that's what happened. And the Essenes have a complete history in Jubilees and Shemitahs uh, on their calendar system that goes back from that. And it's really fascinating to look at all that together. Hmm. How, how explicit are they in saying the Messiah will come and die for our sins? Because... You know, as a Christian, I can say like Isaiah 53 tells us that the Messiah will come and die for our sins. But the, you know, a contemporary uh, or just any Jew since Christianity would say, oh, well, that's talking about the suffering servant who's not the Messiah. It's Israel, uh, you know, whatever. And so we'd go back and forth and I'd say, yes, it is Israel, the true and greater Israel, Jesus. And uh, But or, or we look at psalm 22 and they'd say oh that's david just talking about his own suffering it's nothing to do with some sort of typological fulfillment and uh or zechariah and you know one who's pierced uh for his people like these kinds of of prophecies that we have in the old testament are the prophecies of the essenes like that or are they like no 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 there's gonna be like a dude named jesus of nazareth who comes in such and such year i mean like how specific are they 
Um, well, if both, you have any quotes and references, I know our viewers would love that too. Yeah, both of those are actually true. Um, they have uh, commentaries on the scriptures. They have the scriptures. And just to give you an example, uh, Paul mentioned one of the Messianic prophecies. I think it's in Hebrews. He quoted uh, one of the Old Testament passages that says, a body you have prepared for me. Talking about the Messiah would actually have a body and uh, be sacrificed in that. But the Masoretic text uh, doesn't have that. It's changed. And of course, they say Paul misquoted it. He changed it. Dead Sea Scrolls agree with Paul. And there's not that many changes in the Old Testament. There's only like maybe five or six, but they're like key pieces that somebody just changed a little bit to make it kind of vague like that. And each and every time when you look at the Dead Sea Scroll version, which has got to be 100 to 200 BC before any Christians would tamper with it, uh, they always agree with Paul. And so I thought that's pretty interesting. But in addition to commentaries and the Old Testament that they had, they have uh, the Testamental Patriarchs, um, and probably the most uh, amazing document is 11Q13. And basically the way Dead Sea Scrolls work is there's been some 53 caves explored, most of which don't have anything in them. But when they do find some sort of a writing, they name it as Dead Sea Scroll, Dead sea Scroll Cave number one through 12. So in cave 11, the 13th scroll that was found is 11Q13. But it's an amazing scroll. It talks about uh, uh, a couple of passages in the Old Testament, and then it begins to unpack them and explain them. And it says that uh, the Messiah would come and be a Melchizedekian priest, not a Levitical one. And the Messiah is actually God incarnate. And then it says that he would come to pay the penalty for our sin nature, and that reconciles us to God. And then it goes a step further and says that the event where he reconciles us to God, <coughs> excuse me, would start the age of grace, and the event would actually be one Shemitah after the end of the ninth jubilee of their Una. And those are all calendar terms like centuries and decades and things like that. When you convert that to the Gregorian calendar, that comes out to be 32 AD. And I know some people want to say 31, 32, 33. That doesn't really matter. The point is, give or take a year, they had it down pat that the Messiah is God incarnate. He dies for our sins. That reconciles us to God. It happens, give or take a year, on 32 AD. And that begins the age of grace. And then it goes on with, with several other things. But that's just one manuscript or one scroll. There's in the patriarchal writings, there are a ton of places, probably about five or ten at least, uh, that talk about the Messiah being God incarnate. So it's really interesting to see all this stuff. Well, tell me, okay, so I, as much as I want to dive right into the patriarchs and just start, like, let's just start talking about it, I still want to set the stage for the Essenes. You mentioned that there's this group of Jewish believers, uh, there's a, a true and honest sect that we're, we're determining is true because we have the Messiah who rose from the dead saying <laughs> or doing the similar things that they said. So we assume that they're right, right? Uh, but then also, you said that the Sadducees and the Pharisees were the cults. So I was under the impression, and I'd love for you to correct me here, that the uh, the Pharisees kind of are an offshoot of what was going on in Nehemiah's day. Like we are like, hey, we're going to rebuild the temple. Temple's rebuilt. And like, we're going to have this religious zeal and fervor, like don't intermarry like this kind of extra zealous, we follow the rules kind of um, Judaism. And, and then 
I'm curious, like, where do these scenes emerge? Like, where, like, you said 200 years before Christ, these writings are being penned. So I also have questions about, like, the 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 400 years of, of silence, if you will, uh, that don't seem to be silent any longer. Uh, but could you maybe unpack, like, exactly who these scenes were and their relationships to the Pharisees and Sadducees? Oh, okay. Basically, the, the priests are the Zadok priests. So... It starts off with uh, Levi being the priest or the high priest, and then a few generations later, and any high priest has to be through Aaron, one of his grandchildren. So a few generations after Aaron, something happens, and all the high priests now have to be from Zadok. That's all, that's all in scripture. So the actual priestly class are the Zadok priests. And uh, so this continues for a long time until the rise of, of an apostasy hits, and they start trying to assassinate the Zadok priests. Well, the Zadok priests then at that point uh, believe that uh, the prophecy in Isaiah tells them to pick up and go to Egypt where it's safe. So they pick up and they go to Egypt and create an Essene temple down there, the ruins of which can still be seen, talked about in the church fathers and other places. But basically, they talk about how this apostasy hit and as a matter of fact, that's where the Sadducees get their name, Sadducee or Zedaki. They're trying to say they are the true priestly line. And of course, everybody knew they weren't. Um, and so the priestly line are the ones that have all the written records, uh, the scriptures, and then extra biblical uh, historical writings, genealogical writings, prophecy writings. There's the school of the prophets. They kind of kept all that stuff together. So you've got the actual Essene priests. Now, they talk about how at a certain point there is um, uh, a prophecy given to them that they are to go to Egypt and kind of wait it out. The, the uh, civil war develops about uh, 80 to 90 BC between the Sadducees and the Pharisees to the point that they almost wipe each other out. And the head of the Pharisees and the Sadducees both petition Rome to step in and restore order. And Rome basically says, fine, everybody can worship whatever they want, including rocks or whatever, as long as they pay taxes and be, and be obedient. You try to kill somebody, we kill you on the spot. So that kind of restored order. And the prophecy was given to them is as soon as Rome stepped in, as prophesied by Daniel, they were to go back and start the process of preparing the way of the Messiah. And someone from their order would fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah about a uh, messenger preparing the way of the Messiah. And of course, John the Baptist says that he was that messenger. And we've got records from early church fathers that tell us the people that ran the school of the prophets and include John. And so we understand that John was in a scene where he was at. We've got a lot of uh, uh, church father history on that side. But basically, this comes together. They, for the majority of them, accept the Messiah. Now, there's going to be several fragments or subgroups of Pharisees and Sadducees, and there were even three breakoffs of Essenes that became cultic. Uh, basically, everybody either accepted the Messiah or they didn't accept the Messiah when he came. And so in a nutshell, that's their history. Is, is it possible to think that the wise men from the East are Essenes? Like, am I, am I reaching here? I was kind of always, I've always speculated on the wise men. And I'm thinking, well, Daniel... 
he had some guys in the East. Like maybe this is something going on there, like some kind of passed down, you know, oral tradition from Daniel to these guys. Uh, but if there's another group of people who are hearing from God about dates and births, like, is it not possible that that's what this is? That's possible. We have one record of the Magi from church father. Um, I forget which one. Uh, Julius Africanus, I believe. Um, anyway, uh, one of the church fathers records that they were Persians. They were taught by Daniel, true prophecies, and understood that the Messiah would come and be born. They accepted him as God incarnate. So in a sense, yeah, it was basic Judaism 101. Um, and so in that sense, they definitely were Essenes. They were Gentiles. <coughs> Excuse me. They were Gentiles, so they didn't practice the laws. Um, and, and that made a, a, a difference. So the uh, Zadok priests, of course, were priests. They practiced all the laws according to the law of Moses, but they understood that Gentiles did not. One of the interesting things about it is that Pharisees would only talk to Jews. Sadducees would only talk to Sadducees. Essenes would talk to anybody, man, woman, or child, if you want to know about Messiah and you want to study the prophecies. So it's an interesting uh, mix like that. So they definitely were theologically anyway Essenes, like you and I are by being Christian, but they weren't probably part of the Zadok order. Yeah. Uh, whenever you talked about like the the timing of the crucifixion being nailed down, give or take a year, it made me think about Daniel chapter 9, and uh, it, of course, hugely debated prophecy uh, these days, especially in light of end time stuff. And so uh, I, it made me curious if anything was discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls, one, that was maybe a commentary on Daniel and how they would have understood Daniel 9, for instance, does it when it's tied to a decree is it tied to the decree of cyrus or is it tied to the decree of artaxerxes etc because uh you know you have those who are uh who are looking at the 70 weeks of daniel and point and saying hey this actually is pinpointing the very day of jesus's crucifixion and you have mm -hmm. people who are also looking at it into the the very end of the age and so on and so one, is there any insight that we glean from commentaries on Daniel that were discovered as to how they understood it? And two, was there anything uh, discovered by way of their actual prophecies that maybe were parallel or aligned with Daniel 9 in some way? Yeah, I think um, there, there is a commentary on Daniel. It's very, very fragmented, so you don't get much out of it. They do, do have almost all of Daniel, and it's identical to ours. Um, and I guess mainly the idea of something, for instance, like 11Q13 and the others, but specifically that one that's setting the date of give or take a year, uh, 32 AD. They either got that through the Holy Spirit, through another prophecy. They were known to be 100% accurate prophets, and they were, Essene means healer. They were also herbal medicine guys that practiced faith healing and herbal medicine and were known to live to be uh, around a 120 is standard for them, whereas everybody else lived to be about 60. So amazing groups of people. But they either got that particular thing from 11Q13 through the Holy Spirit, or they simply calculated it through Daniel chapter 9. So either way, it meshes perfectly with the prophecy. Um, but, and I guess it depends on how you want to look at it. Either way, they were accurate in that prophecy. 
So one of the things that I've noticed is that people will say, well, if you if you look at the decree and then you go forward, it comes out to be uh, and Chuck Missler and a lot of people have done this. Um, uh, Sir Robert Anderson and stuff, they come out to be April 6, 32 AD. And people will say, well, that's fine and it fits, but it doesn't mesh with the Passover. Well, it does on the Essene calendar, but it doesn't on the Pharisee calendar, which is a, another subject. But so I, I think altogether, uh, just 11Q13 uh, gives the exact same date as Daniel 9. So they either got it from Daniel 9 or extra biblical prophecy. Neither way, it's, it's correct. Well, tell us about these 12 patriarchs. What are the 12 patriarchs? Explain to us, like you, you mentioned a second ago, it's like their their final will and testament almost, like they're passing down knowledge. It's the, you know, Solomon passing off wisdom to his son. Hey, buddy, don't go after the prostitute. It'll end bad, you know, like that kind of thing. So mm -hmm. these, there are these 12 patriarchs. Uh, I want to know, one, what are they? The two, are they pseudepigraphical? Are the Sians writing these as if they are these people? Or do they really believe that they've passed down this literature uh, in kind of a faithful historic way? Like they would, they, would they have viewed it as their canon? So I guess those are my questions. Yeah, uh, basically, according to what they teach, is that there's uh, patriarchal writings, and so that starts with Adam. Everybody who talked to God would be a prophet. If God revealed anything to you, you'd probably write it down, and so that would make you a prophet. You and I are sons of the prophets. I'm not a prophet, but I study prophecy. And I can probably get close to being knowing everything about prophecy out of what's been written if I study the Old Testament and then the, the school of the prophets and, the, and those type of things. But they said Adam to Aaron is basically this prophetic line. So these are the patriarchs. They all wrote, or probably most of them anyway, wrote a last will and testament that talks about morality, that talks about prophecy, etc., and so then when you get to that time, Aaron, of course, is the brother of Moses. Moses turns around then at this point and writes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. <coughs> Excuse me. So you've got Moses starting to write the Old Testament. And so the Old Testament is Genesis to Malachi. And we got the 400 silent years, and then you've got the New Testament. So the patriarchal writings for the Essenes make up what would be a pre-Mosaic canon. And again, that would be interesting and kind of irrelevant, except that it teaches the same theology as Christian theology. So that really makes you stand up and take notice. If somebody was making up a story like, I don't know, my grandfather was a prophet and knew Moses and his name was George and he, you know, and I just made up the story. Somewhere along the line, there would be some errors that don't fit with the New Testament. Remember, the New Testament hadn't been written yet. This is at least two to 300 BC. Even if everything is totally made up, it's still way, way pre-Christian. So the interesting thing about that is, is that everyone knew that, that language. And in Josephus, it talks about a prophecy Adam wrote, uh, prophecies or, or records that Seth wrote. We have a piece of Enos's writing. Uh, the testament of, of Aaron is really amazing, but... Um, anyway, so you have this this legend, okay, and everybody knows that the Essenes lived out in, around Qumran, so there should be, unless they took them all with them, there should be books out there somewhere. And of course, treasure hunters would always go try to find things. So in the Middle Ages, somebody came up to, I think it was the Syrian and or Armenian church, and said, we found these books in 
the area of Judea buried in the hills that reports to be the testaments of the 12 patriarchs, that'd be the sons of Jacob, Reuben through uh, Benjamin. So they took them and thought, okay, they're legitimate. They translated them into Greek, put them in their canon. And that's a nice story. And I remember going through this in seminary. It's like, well, these things are amazing. And my professor said, yes, but the Hebrew doesn't exist. They say it came from, the, from Judea. No way to prove that. It's way too Christian. Most people are going to look at it as fiction. There's no way you can use it to witness. And he was right. There's no evidence to support it. Well, after 1948, not only did we find pieces of, I think, four or five of the, test, the 12 Testaments of the Patriarchs, but we find altogether some 20-some uh, pieces of the Testaments of all of the Patriarchs. So apparently the story is real. Uh, the, guy, the guys got the originals from uh, the area of Qumran. And so it's really interesting in that respect. So you've got these things that talk about, look, I, I, I went into alcohol, I went into prostitution, I went into this, and, I did, and man, that really messed me up. Or I was very angry at Joseph and I became bitter and that messed me up. So there's a lot of good moral teachings in that. But they all teach, I mean, altogether, all there's probably at least five or ten, like I say, that talk about Messiah being God incarnate. Uh, things like that. The Testament of Levi, for instance, in his testament, he says he was 18 years old. He had his life all planned out. He's going to marry this cute girl who's a princess. Dad's got a good army, lots of money, set, not a problem, you know. And then I guess something happens and a friend of his dies and all of a sudden it just dawns on him. He says in his testament, he's like, oh my gosh, Every single human being has a sin nature. We, there, there's no way to fix this. We're all toast. I don't know what to do. And so he prays to God saying, I just realized this. I'm not, I'm just as bad as everybody else. So God speaks to him in a dream and says that the Messiah will fix things. And you are to be the next priest and, you know, this kind of stuff. So he goes home and he tells Jacob, this is what happened. This is my thoughts. This is my prayer. This is the dream I had. What do you think? And Jacob says, finally, come, I will train you how to be a priest, you know. And so it's interesting to me. It's oh, there's a whole bunch of things like that in there. It's like there's times that you just got to let your kids figure it out on their own. You just can't communicate to them. But the whole idea that he finally realized we have a sin nature, every single human being. And there's nothing we can do about it. We got to trust Messiah. Don't know how he's going to fix it, but, you know. So there's all of those kind of things in there. The Testament of Aaron is pretty interesting, too. It actually says that I know that my kids will apostatize later on and, and will reject the Messiah when he comes. And I'm going to give a warning to you. Any of my kids that have any common sense have nothing to do with the nails. And then you'll remain in God's grace. And of course, it's fragmented, so we don't know what else he was going to say. But to have a prophecy that you know Messiah is going to come, my kids, who are the priests, are going to reject him, put him to death. And if you want to make sure that you remain in God's grace, don't have anything to do with the nails. Now, they didn't have crucifixion back at that time. So it's really interesting to see all of these pieces come together. But basically, 12 patriarchs are the 12 sons of Jacob, 
And the other patriarchal writings are the same caliber. They tell us all sorts of amazing prophecies and moral points. Hmm. Now, does scholarship typically understand this as the legit last will and testament of each patriarch? Like Simeon really wrote this, Naphtali really wrote this, uh, Benjamin really wrote this, etc.? Or is it more pseudographical, like, well, you know, the Essenes probably wrote it or, you know, and, and they were kind of posing as though they were that person and which was a typical thing. It was like ancient ghostwriting. So what's the typical consensus on uh, on these? Who wrote them? I think the typical consensus on all of that stuff is that nobody believes in prophecy. And so all this stuff would be fiction. Um, I, I even run across people that still say the book of Daniel is fiction written by some guy in the time of the Maccabean period, you know, kind of made up all the stories. After uh, he except, saw all the things come to pass. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The fact that he prophesies it all the way up to the Romans destroying the temple in 70 AD. Okay. So I don't know how the, either way you look at it, it's a real prophecy. So it's the same kind of stuff. I mean, obviously things have been rewritten especially like dates, place names, things like that. So you, you can see that kind of stuff in there. And I think most people don't pay any attention to it. Um, however, in the Jewish community, it's a little different though, because if this really is writings from my forefathers, I'm going to pay attention to them. I've got friends that are Jewish, that are Orthodox, that absolutely will tell you from right out. I believe the Testament of Noah is the Testament of Noah, my great, great grandfather. And I'm always encouraging them. You know, it's like, I actually believe that too. I think it's real. Please read it, read it carefully, study it, follow what Noah taught, ignore Pharisees, just think about it and then read the New Testament. You'll end up becoming Christian is what's going to happen. Um, and so it's interesting to me, this would be an in-house debate because you and I are thinking that the Pharisees made up the oral Torah, maybe the Essenes made up the patriarchs, maybe the other guys made up others, maybe it's all made up, okay? But again, as a Christian, when you compare it to the New Testament, the Pharisee, the Sadducee, and all the groups don't match. The Essenes match basic Christian theology. So it would be almost impossible for them to make up a story and have it match the New Testament unless we just stole it from them. We, they didn't steal it from us, but we could have taken that and, and rent with it. But if you believe the New Testament is real history and Jesus is Messiah and he came to die for our sins and it, all that is true, and these guys 200 years beforehand are writing this stuff, uh, they wouldn't be able to write it as fiction and be accurate prophecies. You know, and so uh, e. Josephus and everyone else talks about how the fact they were 100% accurate prophets. They talk about uh, Essenes mentioned that are actually even mentioned in the New Testament, like Menachem and others, and the things that they did, the things that happen. Um, so it's it's pretty interwoven in that kind of stuff. One of the things I thought was interesting is that you get uh, Essenes talking about how the gifts of the Spirit still flow, prophecy still works, everything is fine, just like it always has been. And then you get the Pharisees saying that, oh, no, that stuff died out a long time ago. You know, and then you get to the New Testament. <laughs> Did the Pharisees and, make a documentary about how all the all of the, the prophecies had ceased? Is that, that also happened in the first century? I'm sorry. I, I, that, that, is my, that is my playful whim about joking. They write a book called documentary was just released. I was... I'm sorry. Strange oh, okay. fire. Yeah, that's what it was. Yeah. There you go. 
Well, it's just interesting, though, that they said that, and we get to the New Testament, and everybody says, okay, the gifts still continued up to that time, but then the, the gifts ceased. And and then, you know, when you look at the early church fathers, you can tell they continue, uh, you know, for at least a few hundred years. But it's just interesting to see that everybody, you know, if they go into some other area, <clears throat> and I'm not trying to say that they do or do not exist right now today. I think they do, but... Um, I don't know any personal prophets that I that are 100% accurate, but it's just interesting to see that the way the Pharisees act and the the other things like that, all the people that pull away and end up rejecting the Messiah. So I guess an answer to your question is most people would be very skeptical because most of the uh, academia probably would not accept the concept of new prophecy or prophecy in general. So how on earth do you lose these books? Like if they're if they're the real deal, if these are like, you know, great grandpapa Moses passed this book down to this other guy, and like, how do you lose that? Like you would think that it would be as important as like Chronicles. whoever lost that, that they've they've they really demoted. messed up for sure. Yeah. They, they really really messed up. So like, what do you? How did how did we get from? Well, okay, the Armenian church found this book in the Middle Ages, you know, and translated it and then lost the originals or maybe they just fell apart because they were old uh, and they didn't take care of them well. And then then you have the these Dead Sea Scrolls that are merged that were like, oh, wow, they bring some validity to this finding that took place in the Middle Ages. But but still, these are lost to history. How did that happen and, and why? Yeah, I don't know for sure, but my theory is... Um, you don't lose things that are extremely important unless you want to lose them. And you've got that kind of a thing in church history and other things when people like the medieval church decides they don't want you to believe in whatever. So they kind of put things aside or tell you it didn't happen or whatever. And I think you've got that in the apostasy in the first century too. So if the Sadducees and Essenes want to take over, and they want to say that the Messiah that everybody's looking for is just a general that's going to win the war with the Romans and then turn everything over to us. Then that's the way you want to paint it. Somebody that says the opposite, you say, well, that's not true. Yeah, but these guys are prophets. Oh, no, prophets don't exist anymore. You, you kind of do that kind of thing. And I, I don't see how you could accidentally lose that. If my great grandfather was a prophet, and had written the books, I would make 29,000 copies and I would send them to all parts of the world. I would make sure that thing exists. Um, it would be a, what I would want to do with my life. I don't think it can accidentally just cease to exist. And I think that was the main idea that the, that the, um, the, the um, Essenes or the Zadok priest kept the entire library and um, talked about it all the time. And so when you get an oral Torah that says something different, that's got to be wrong because it goes against our thing. I would mention one thing, though. They make make sure it's uh, they understand that this concept of like, I don't want to call it a dispensation, but like a, a, a set of books. The concept that was taught is that the most important thing that we we have is the what we would call the Old Testament. And that's the books from Moses to Malachi. And we have them in 39 books. They, they regroup them and make them 22 or 24. But the Old Testament is closed. You don't add to the Old Testament. And so we have that concept with the New Testament too. So the New Testament's the New Testament. The Old Testament's the Old Testament. You don't add Dead Sea Scrolls to either one of them. And you don't put patriarchal writings or anything else in the, in the Bible, for instance. Uh, but that being said, all of the old records 
are still around. You know, Josephus quotes from that prophecy of Adam, uh, talks about the things that Seth did, and uh, many other things like that. There's one place in Josephus, he's talking about the lineage of Seth and the lineage of Cain and everything. And he says, literally, it would be way too tedious for me to mention all the kids. So I'm just going to mention that there's 10 of them and then there's a flood and we're going to continue. Now we pass by that, but think about that. He didn't say it's not possible because there's no records. He said it would be very tedious for, he to, for me to mention all the branches of the family. So he could do it, but it would be too tedious for him at the moment. So there are records somewhere, even in the first century, about all the pre-flood people. So it's really interesting to see once you start looking for that stuff. I don't think that exists anymore. Maybe it does somewhere, but there's a lot of other things out there, um, a lot of histories that match the Bible, I think, when you start looking at it. So, so willful tampering from Pharisees and Sadducees, either tampering good old-fashioned book burnings like that kind of thing like they're they're a cult group that's like you're not allowed to read this you're not allowed to go after this so they you think that they intentionally went out as <laughs> the, the 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 theory that is becoming more and more prevalent is that the masoretic text is deeply affected by pharisees and sadducees changing certain messianic prophecies whereas the septuagint seems to be faithful and lining up with these kind of messianic prophecies, and if they're willing to tamper with the Bible, certainly they're willing to play with, uh, you know, these patriarchal leaders. So, so ultimately, you you you, you smell a whiff of uh, a conspiracy theory. Is is what I'm gathering from you? Is that right? Yeah, I would say that too. Uh, the Septuagint is off on most of its dating system, um, and I say that compared to the Masoretic text, the Dead Sea Scrolls. For me, I'm just going to go by what the Dead Sea Scrolls say, and they have, uh, like I say, all of the Old Testament except for Esther, uh, the vast majority of it anyway. <coughs> Excuse me. So in other words, if we compare the Dead Sea Scrolls to the New Testament, to Paul's writings, where Paul says this is the way the prophecy is, some of the Masoretic texts would be off. Usually the Septuagint matches Paul. The Dead Sea Scrolls always match Paul. So the prophecy parts are really good that way. So there's, there's pieces of each one that are not quite correct as far as the dates. Somehow when you go to do a translation, I don't know why, but the dates always mess up. You look at the Book of Enoch and Jubilees, for instance, as it went into Giaz and then uh, Aramic. Uh, good stuff, but the dates are horribly messed up. I don't know why. Two plus two is four. It shouldn't be that hard, but somehow the dates are always messed up. But yeah, I think it's... Um, conspiracy in that sense to get rid of that kind of stuff and i think the uh the zadok priests were the ones to say no we're going to hold all this together we're going to make copies we're going to take the entire library with us when we go to egypt we're going to bring the entire library back when we come back and set up what they called new damascus where we call qumran and do everything so um i think a conspiracy theory is a good idea at this point and actually they so much say um, that kind of a thing as far as like this is right and this is wrong and kind of match everything up. So I, I would agree with that. Something definitely weird happened. Yeah. Okay. So you talked a little bit about the Apocrypha just now. You quoted a few Apocryphal books and mentioned the Septuagint, which contained the Apocrypha and our Eastern Orthodox uh, 
brothers will say, well, hey, the Apocrypha included the Septuagint. This is the Bible that the uh, apostles often quoted. It's the one that they were working from. We should include the Apocrypha in our Bibles today. And, uh, and, and so I'm curious about the Essenes because you also talked about a closed canon mm-hmm. and some of the difference between their writings and the Septuagint, the, for our viewers, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Okay, so do, do the writings of the Essenes and the discoveries in the Dead Sea Caves have any bearing on these apocryphal books and their inclusion or exclusion from uh, the canon uh, at all? What would you say? Um, I would say, uh, yeah, basically the, the idea is, I think that the idea that they give is that if we had a canon that had uh, 12,000 books in it. Nobody would ever even try to read it. They would say, well, there's no way I can get saved. Just forget about it. So the concept is that the Old Testament is all that you need for that time period. The New Testament is what you need for salvation and godliness. And the two together are two separate canons, but we don't want to add to them. But then outside of that, there's all these other records. So the Book of Enoch, I believe, contains real prophecy maybe slightly garbled through the Ethiopic version. So we got to be careful with it, but that's probably true of everything. Um, And the book of Enoch actually mentions that there is a group of books, the righteous live their lives by, which we would call the canon, and that his book is not to be added to that. Except Jude, for instance, quotes Enoch. So we know it's a legitimate or was a legitimate book. So I think it's, it's, it's fairly complex or not complex, but it's pretty easy to understand the whole idea that uh, we have an Old Testament and a New Testament, and that's not to be added to. Now, the uh, one of the things I thought was interesting, if you look at a King James 1611, <clears throat> the uh, concept is that the Catholics, and it was the Catholics and Protestants together under King uh, James to create this one Bible for everybody. And what they did was they took the, uh, the apocryphal parts out of the Old Testament and put in the middle. So you've got the Old Testament, the Apocrypha, and the New Testament. And they did that specifically because of that legend that you're not supposed to add to it and the canon is closed. And what's interesting is they added to the Apocrypha. Most people think the Apocrypha is just Roman Catholic. But to that Roman Catholic group of Apocryphal books in the middle, they added uh, Second Ezra, or the Ezra Apocalypse. And there's a, te- uh, a prophecy and story in the Apocalypse about how the Holy Spirit through Ezra closed the canon. And it's supposed to be only the 24 books. And so I thought it was interesting that the the Anglicans then would say, well, based on this, if we're going to put apocryphal stuff in there, we're going to take all of them, throw our one book in there too, put it in the center so that we can all decide it. So you can read it for yourself, but understand that even if that took place and is 100% accurate, and it took place in the time of the Old Testament, we still wouldn't want to add it to the Old Testament. So the Old Testament's closed, the New Testament's closed, but there's other books we might want to look at if and when you have the New Testament and the Old Testament understood very well. Okay. So tell us more about the Messiah. I mean, you mentioned there's like five to 10 places in the um, the 12 patriarchs that talk about the Messiah. Tell us about like the priestly role uh, that he's going to fulfill incarnation i think i even remember you saying that there was a trinity 
kind of described maybe even loosely without the tr- triune language being exercised uh, could, could you maybe like shed some more light on what exactly the Essenes were saying that lined up so much with Christian history maybe Christian theology is a better word yeah um, basically um, they talked about how there's God the Father and usually they refer to him as Hashem there is the Messiah nobody really knows that much about him uh, unless there's a Christophany but eventually he will come and incarnate and he's God somehow he's different from the father it's not like the father incarnating but somehow he is god and then as prophets they all know the the ruach HaKodesh, the holy spirit uh, very well and so the holy spirit is not the messiah the messiah is not the father the father's not the holy spirit none of them are angels it's that kind of a concept in the west we always have to name things we call it a trinity or this or that and they're like now don't don't name stuff because as soon as you start doing that you're probably going to mess up just know that there's hashem there's a coming messiah and there's the, the holy spirit and that's good enough somehow those work and then there are angels and there are people and things like that but yeah there's many places where it talks about the messiah would be of the uh descendant of of uh, of judah uh descendant of david there's actually one in the commentaries the commentaries are really cool you know how in galatians paul talks about how uh even abraham accepted god through faith and that basic was his basis for reconciliation and for for salvation and paul indicates that it was his belief in a coming messiah his faith on messiah whom he didn't know it wasn't just god but it was messiah and paul uses um habakkuk chapter 2 the just live by faith as his proof text for that well most jews today would say well that's just faith in god and faith in stuff it's got nothing to do with the messiah but it's interesting their habakkuk is identical with ours no no difference in that but in the commentary portions it actually says the just live by faith and that is by faith in the teacher of righteousness on his way however he works out salvation so it, it clearly says in their commentary that when it when you're talking about the just living by faith it's by faith in the messiah so it's interesting just to kind of see those kind of things and again the text is the same the commentary definitely agrees with paul hmm. uh, earlier you talked a, a little bit about the expectation that there would be like this nationalistic messiah it seemed like you were making a contrast with the Essenes in some of these prophecies, and certainly a Messiah dying for sins would contrast with the nationalistic uh, narrative. But I'm curious what further contrast we have uh, specifically in describing the Messiah. I mean, in his life, he's casting out demons and healing the sick and serving the poor, uh, not kicking Rome's butt in some overt swords and spear kind of way. Uh, okay, so his life, his death, and even his resurrection. Could you frame that just prophecies that we have from the Essenes about Christ's life, death, and resurrection that would contrast with the nationalistic narrative? Okay. Yeah, they, they believed in both. Instead of like two messiahs in one coming, there would be one messiah in two comings. Uh, a, a resurrect a death burial and a resurrection um, that's taught 
in there. But basically, there's a whole lot of things as far as um, uh, different things about the Messiah. For instance, uh, there's uh, one place in the Damascus Covenant that talks about an incident that happened when Messiah came and preached in Qumran. And I believe that's connected with John, I think it's chapter 10, where he was down there preaching. But uh, for instance, there's, there's a lot of um, uh, examples you could give. Remember, and I think it's Matthew 11, where it talks about uh, someone, John the Baptist is in prison. And he sends someone to say, are you he who is to come or should we look for another? And everybody says, well, that's, you know, he's, he's doubting. Not exactly. Um, if Jesus was to appear right now beside me, uh, I'm a firm believer in a pre-trib rapture and salvation by grace through faith and, you know, basic stuff. But I would still be saying, hey, Jesus, pre is okay. It's, what about the gray? Oh, okay. I would be asking just to make sure because I could be wrong. Um, and I think that's what John is doing. But what's really interesting is uh, Jesus says, go back and tell John one, two, three, four, five, five things. And those things, four of those five are mentioned in the prophets. One of them is that the dead are raised is actually not prophesied in the Old Testament. But there is a Dead Sea Scroll called the Messianic Anthology, which lists prophecies that the Messiah would do when he comes. And it has all five of those in order. So what I believe Jesus was doing is saying, John is in a scene. He's from the school of the prophets. He's asking, was he correct? Is there one Messiah with two comings or two Messiahs at one coming? Does he look for another now? You know, what's going on? Go back and tell him that I have fulfilled all five of that scroll. And that should tell him what's going on. So it's really interesting to see that kind of a mix inside the New Testament. Um, and there's a lot of other things too. For instance, in the Testament of, I think it's one of the Testaments, I forget which one, I think it's Benjamin. But it talks about how um, when the Messiah dies, uh, God will reject the priesthood for rejecting the Messiah. And the sign for that will be the veil of the temple ripped in half. Now, Matthew tells us that when Jesus died, the veil of the temple was ripped in half, but he doesn't tell us that that was actually a prophecy. Half the time, Matthew tells us it's a prophecy, and other, other times he just tells us this stuff happened. So it's interesting just to kind of see those things. So you've got, you've got someone who's in a scene, and by birth has learned all these things about somebody named Yeshua uh, coming and healing the blind, raising the dead, dying for our sins at a certain date. You can get the calendar out and figure it out. Uh, the veil of the temple is going to be ripped in half. And then after that, the next Pentecost that comes, I could enter the age of grace. And he sees all of this take place. Naturally, he's going to come to Pentecost and interrupt Peter and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. How do I get saved? You know, and thousands are going to be led to the Lord that first day. 3,000, I think it was. Of which the scripture says the majority of those were Levites, which kind of makes sense. Zadok priests. So there's a whole lot of things like that. Uh, that point to their concept of Messiah, what would happen, both their interpretations of Old Testament writings and the extra biblical prophecies. Hmm. Okay. Well, we have almost burned through an hour already. So I, I guess that one, the closing question for me on my end, I don't know if Michael's got one, but one on my end would be, why do we need it? Like, 
you know, there's a person that's sitting out there listening to the story and they're kind of geeking out with us. We're all Christians. It's really exciting to hear that there were a bunch of prophecies about Jesus that would come and they pointed directly to him. That's kind of exciting and fun. But like you said it a second ago, it's probably not scripture. We only have fragments in the Dead Sea Scrolls. We don't have the originals from the Armenian church. Like we, there's all these different things that are going on. Like we, we don't, we don't know for sure about these texts and these are kind of fun things to engage with and talk about, but like we have messianic prophecies in the Bible, right? Like we, why do we need these other books? So I guess that would be my question as, as interesting as all of this is. So what, like, like what, what would you have us do with this information? What should Christians be? Why should this be important? Why should we be engaging with it? If we have other messianic prophecies that are actually scripture, why should we be leaning into these other prophecies that aren't? Yeah, I, th- I think the main main point is eventually Christianity begins to apostatize before the second coming. And about that same time, Israel gets saved or becomes more and more messianic. And I think the main point of this is that in witnessing the Jews who have been told that um, the uh, New Testament and Christians are weird, you need to stay away from them. Well, that's fine. But when you find records from your... Uh, uh, grandfathers that agree with the Christian concepts or some of the Christian concepts, not necessarily Roman Catholic, but that kind of stuff against what the rabbis said, then you know you've been lied to. Some, something's amiss. And so it's, a, it's an excellent witnessing tool. And I, many people that I know of that have been messianic have come to the Lord because of what the scrolls say, especially like 11Q13. So they're amazing witnessing tools. And the vast majority of the extra biblical stuff all point to the first coming of the Messiah. All the most of the extra biblical prophecies and documents and things like that and lifestyle. But we can learn from them um, what to do in a time of darkness when it gets really bad right before the second coming or before the first coming. Uh, how to how to witness, how to not witness, what to do in that form of apostasy. Um, and then also there are some. Uh, uh, second coming prophecies that are interesting. For instance, there's always supposed to be a type of uh, uh, a time of repentance, persecution beforehand. The first age was 120 years. The second age was 40. Talks about the teacher of righteousness between the time he died and the destruction of the temple was right at 40 years. And then it talks about at the end of our age, it's supposed to be a seven year period. Now they could have got that from Daniel again, but there's a lot of other things like that. So the vast majority are things that you and I don't necessarily need to know uh, for ourselves. It would be good to be able to witness. Um, but at the second time, um, there are other things that talk about how we need to be safe, what we need to do, how we need to witness, uh, things like that. And, and some extra biblical prophecies are surrounding the second coming of the Messiah. So there's, there's enough there to study. But uh, again, I would say the vast majority of us, if you're not witnessing to Jews or that kind of stuff, the main thing is to study and, and just devour the New Testament. And then when you have time, also the Old Testament, because you're not going to know who Sarah and Hagar are you know, if Galatians, unless you know Genesis. And then to understand some of the other things, some of the other prophecies, and to know that Paul quoted it correctly, you would go to the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay. All right. Well, uh, yeah, Josh, you asked if I had another question. I think that's pretty good for me, Ken. I would, I would just love uh, if you could, one, 
hold up that book. The one that's maybe has the most of the prophecies about the Messiah, which book that people should purchase if they want to look some more into that, number one. And then number two, Ken, uh, if you could, if there's just like a nutshell that you want people to walk away with, a summarizing statement, just what's our key takeaway here? So just those two questions together, and then we'll we'll wrap up the show after that. Okay. Well, basically, this is uh, uh, Ancient Testaments of the Patriarchs, if I can get it without a light on it. And that is the 12 patriarchs uh, plus the, the other 20-some. And again, it just shows us that the theology has always been consistent, much like we're Christians today, and there's cults today that claim to be Christian. And you don't want to fall in with a cult. You want to follow true Christianity, true Judaism. It's all the same thing. Uh, we can use this to witness uh, if we do it right. And it's part of what was going to happen. I believe, like I said, uh, Isaiah 29 is a prophecy about the Dead Sea Scrolls coming back and different things happening. Uh, church fathers mention it. And I think it's all kind of tied in together. Uh, number one, I want us to all focus on the New Testament, judge everything by the New Testament, nothing else besides that. And I think it's important for us just to be ready to witness and to do the things we're supposed to do in this time, because I think the time is short. Okay. That's good. Ken, thank you so much for coming on the program today. For those of you who are watching, you want to go check out some of uh, Ken's books, you need to go check them out in the links of the description. You can go pick those up and learn all about this stuff. It's fascinating. It's that crossover section of history, theology, and the gifts of the Spirit that we love, and all of them at the same time. It's super exciting. So make sure to uh, uh, pick up one of his books. You'll see that we have linked his YouTube channel in with the YouTube description. It's highlighted there in blue. You should be able to click it and link over to his channel if you're wanting to subscribe over to that content. Uh, but then also, if you want to be introduced to more scholars and theologians and historians who engage with this kind of content, make sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel uh, and to the newsletter, because that's really how we uh, stay in contact with you guys, uh, no matter what happens here on the YouTube. So thank you so much for tuning into this program of Remnant Radio, and we'll see you next Monday uh, and Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. Central Standard Time. I want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek in Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description, and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classrooms. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of REMNANT Radio.